The Landlord and Lawyer Podcast with Ben Beadle and Tessa Shepherdson. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Landlord and Lawyer Podcast. He's Ben Beadle, and he is the Chief Executive Officer of the National Residential Landlord Association, and he is the landlord. Indeed, and she is Tessa Shepherdson, Director of Landlord Law, uh, and also a lawyer. That's right. And this is the Landlord and Lawyer podcast. Today, we've got a really interesting session for you. We are talking about possession proceedings, which is very topical because we've had a lot of new rules come out. That's right. And it will be interesting to see because although we've got practice directions that are out, uh, we're recording this on the 6th of August. And frankly, uh, who knows um, uh, what will come out between uh, now and this podcast being published. We've got two interesting guests to talk to today. One of them is Bernadette Chetway um, and the other one is Eleanor Solomon. Both of them are solicitors. Both of them tend to do more work for tenants. So Ben, you and I are going to have to uh, fight for the landlords. Not for the first time. So let's move on to the interview. Okay, welcome everybody. And we have two guests with us today in our podcast on possession proceedings. Our first guest is Bernadette. How do you pronounce your surname, Bernadette? Chikwe. Chikwe. And um, Bernadette, you are a director of housing at Slister's Duncan Lewis, where I think you've been for about seven years. Yes, that's correct. Can you tell us a bit about the work that you do? Well, um, I do all aspects of housing litigation and landlord and tenant housing matters. I supervise a team of solicitors, uh, trainees and caseworkers, and I've been a duty solicitor, duty advisor solicitor in Bow County Court when that was up and Central London County Court. And I, I assist with all matters of, of rent possession, social, uh, uh, social landlords, housing associations, uh, local authorities, and also private um, Private, it gets private landlords and disrepair issues and homeless matters. Um, I see um, I see in the, the blurb about you on your firm's page that um, you you have um, done work as a duty solicitor at the courts. Yes, and I'm also frightfully impressed because you speak all these languages. You speak yes. <laughs> Swedish, Norwegian, German and French. I mean, uh, I'm a typical English person. I can't really speak any foreign languages. <laughs> Because I'm from De- Denmark originally, so the, the Scandinavian languages are really similar. So we do we do pick them up. So that's yeah. We, yeah. I think that's so impressive. <laughs> Good stuff. And our other guest today is uh, Eleanor Solomon from Anthony Gold uh, Solicitors, also involved with the Housing Law Practitioners Association, and sitting on the Legal Aid Working Group. Welcome, Eleanor. Thank you very much. Uh, maybe you could give us a little pricey of your background and uh, what your uh, expertise are. Yeah, certainly. So um, I'm also a solicitor at Anthony Gold, working in um, various matters, mainly for tenants. Um, the Housing Law Practitioners Association, or HELPER, um, is an organisation that represents the interests of um, practitioners who work for tenants and homeless applicants. So of interest in the last few months throughout the pandemic, I've been on regular calls with the Ministry of Justice and the court service, just talking a little and feeding in with them about how we're going to manage possession claims and all other kind of court claims in the pandemic and after the pandemic, which is obviously a lot of minor practical matters, but of interest. Indeed. And, you know, understanding the new rules of the game, I think uh, uh, no doubt we will get on to in, to, in today's session. Absolutely. So um, I suppose perhaps we ought to say what happened before everything went pear-shaped. <laughs> so um, how did, how, how did gen- possession proceedings generally work, Bernadette? Because they, they used to be listed on special days, didn't they? In the- That's correct. That's correct. Yeah. Well, I know from the recent experience in central London, they're listed on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. And that's when we, that's when we do our duty scheme. And we have, you know, we have solicitors coming to assist the clients with their hearings on those dates. Um, and um, do most courts have duty solicitors available to help tenants? I believe most of them, but obviously there are some that haven't, but they are, they are fairly widespread. 
-hmm. Yeah, I think um, from my knowledge from Helper, there's only apart from some very rural areas in Cornwall where they have a, a lack, everybody else does have a duty scheme. Uh-huh. So um, we had this stay, <laughs> which has been, which came in in March, so nothing's really been happening. Bernadette, can you tell us a bit about, because we've, we've got some new rules that are coming in, can you tell us a bit about what these new rules are and what, how they're going to work? Yes, well, perhaps it would be a good idea to start just quickly from the beginning in terms of, obviously, the, there was the um, outbreak of coronavirus. Mm -hmm. And then there was that Coronavirus Act 2020 that came in into force, which initially, and the practice direction uh, 55-1 said, which came initially, uh, stayed the proceedings for 90 days on 25th of June 2020. And also in that Coronavirus Act, there's now... The notice period for generally all tenancies are now three, you know, at least three months. And also those, the stay requirements was possession claims, but also possession claims where there was a counter where the tenant bought a counterclaim. That was also stayed at the same time. Then on the 5th of June, 2020, it was the practice direction 51 said was amended slightly to extend, and the stay was then extended to 23rd of August, 2020. Uh, and also the practice direction ceased to have effect from 25th of June 2020. The Rules Committee has now made amendments to the actual Part 55 of the C uh, Civil Procedure Rules. And those are the ones that is now called the CPR Part 55.229, which came into force on 25th of June. And one of the firstly was any possession proceedings have stayed till 25th of August, or 23rd of August. 2020, but obviously excludes certain claims like trespassers claim, interim possession orders, and any injunctive relief applications or applications for, for directions. Interestingly, have you had any of those type claims during this period? I mean, have you, have you been instructed? I mean, don't give us details, obviously, but have there been any injunctions? Yes, there has been in terms of from the other side, because obviously we deal mainly from tenants. So we have had injunctions applied for by 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 landlords in particular with in relation to antisocial behavior mm -hmm. and um have they have they been successful have, are they particularly difficult i mean it, it's, it must be a difficult time if you're mm. i mean for example if you're a tenant in an hmo with uh, with antisocial other tenants yes yeah we do generally get a lot of even now new inquiries as well as to do with a lot of of housing and neighbor dispute because people are at home so much more. And obviously how an antisocial behavior is if you have a tenant who is already perpetrating that, then, you know, in being at home, maybe that does exacerbate the problem. And it depends on, on the nature of the antisocial behavior and also the tenants, whether they have mental health issues or something that causes the, you know, the acts of antisocial behavior, but yeah. it's a mixed bag. Some have been granted and some haven't. Mm. Yeah, my experience certainly is that we've got a lot more inquiries about antisocial behaviour, um, both from people being accused of it. I mean, sometimes it's just a matter, you've got four kids, usually they're at school all day and your neighbour doesn't have to hear them tramping around in the um, poor, poor sound insulation and now it's become a nightmare because you're at home all day and everyone can hear your children. So um, there's a whole range of things, but definitely tensions are high for everybody mm. and being stuck in has left led to an increase in inquiries about antisocial behaviour. Mm -hmm. there's um there's also the issue about possession notices um i mean ben you um you wrote a cross letter about the welsh situation didn't you the other day i i, I did uh, and obviously uh, for landlords in wales they now have to give six months uh, advance notice and you know with all of this we understand totally get the backdrop as to why we don't necessarily need people being booted out but i think as yeah, and we were actually, as an organisation, supportive, if, if that's the right term, of the initial uh, stay. But I think, it, in our view, the, you know, the, the, the decision by Welsh ministers, they've been criticised from all angles in terms of the process that, that they have followed, uh, being criticised by quite an influential committee that say uh, it, it pretty much breaches landlords' uh, human rights. Uh, but moreover, away from that, I just think the announcement lacks 
balance and any credibility given it, that they've had such a long time to be able to do this uh, and they they choose to do it at this particular juncture uh, and it lacks balance from the point of view of you know relying on landlords to simply suck up uh, another six months worth of debt and that's why we're a little bit cross about it and uh, we eagerly await uh, a response to to that letter that was issued a couple of days ago because mm. when does because the the um, period of time where Welsh landlords have to give the six months notice it's not a huge period of time is it when's it due to end 30th of September and uh, unless colleagues uh, correct me to the contrary but uh, and that's the same in England so those three month provisions that have been, have been extended until the 30th of September and we're you know in discussions with MHCLG around what that looks like going going forwards but you know to, to bring in six months at this particular juncture even for a period of six weeks I mean a it just creates a, a real cliff edge for the 30th of September, which isn't terribly helpful. And as I say, secondly, it overlooks really the good work that on the whole landlords have been doing to sustain tenancies, not increase rent and not boot their tenants out. Mm. So um, so that the, the six months is, is only in Wales, I should reassure any Indeed. landlords listening to this. Um, in, in England, it's, it's three months. Three months. And, and also in Wales, it's not six months for everything. It's been left at three months i think for antisocial behavior but everything else is yeah. is, is six months and this is quite an interesting dynamic i think that that folk overlook the the impact that antisocial behavior domestic violence uh, all of those types of things invariably it doesn't impact the landlord truth be told it impacts other neighbors other tenants and so forth um, and as part of the judicial working group uh, which the nrla sits on uh, and I think HLPA uh, sit on that group as well, unless I'm mistaken, if my memory serves me correctly. I um, right, I yeah. yeah, I forget who the colleague is that's on that. But but certainly, you know, as part of the new provisions, they are looking at prioritising cases to manage the, the backlog that we need to be dealt with. And antisocial behaviour is at the top of that uh, list. So draft what, list, I should say. <laughs> so what's going to happen on the 24th of August? Um, there's, there's these new rules. I mean, the, I think the first thing is that um, if anybody's got a case that's, that's sort of stuck in the queue, as it were, you, you've got to serve a, a reactivation notice. Yes, that's, do you want me to go over those, the new... Um, Perhaps very briefly for yeah. people listening who, who aren't aware of them, and then we can then discuss them. Yeah, so it's obviously it's a new, they amended the actual Part 56 civil pr uh, procedure rules, to, and there's now a new Fraction Direction 55C, and that stay to do with the state claims, which are the claims that were stayed before uh, 20, 22nd of August 2020. So, so what do people need to do? Sorry. So but... they need to, what they need to do is that one of the parties need to file and serve a reactivation notice confirming that they wish to the claim to be uh, relisted, listed, uh, heard or referred. And in that reactivation notice, they need um, to state they wanted listed and they need to set out what knowledge they have of the implications on the defendants uh, of the coronavirus pandemic on the, de um, the tenant or the defendant and their dependents. And that's, um, if I may jump in there, yeah, that's, uh, uh, again, something that has come from the Judicial Working Group. Uh, obviously, the courts at a really basic level want to know if all of the cases in the system need to be dealt with, because I think it is likely that um, with the goodwill that has been shown uh, through this, you know, potentially uh, some cases may well fall by the wayside. But in terms of that reactivation notice and in terms of the the, the COVID marking, as it's being uh, called, that also, uh, and I'm sort of at pains to stress this, um, landlords do need to let the court know to the best of their knowledge and belief whether the occupants have been or may have been affected by COVID-19 but also uh, the same is true of the landlord themselves because let's not forget that a number of these cases 
although they may well have been affected by COVID since then, a number of these uh, landlords would have had cases that were just due to be heard that have taken a significant period of time to get there. They've had a block uh, for a further five months. And, you know, the impact uh, on the landlord also shouldn't be uh, to be uh, explained. So the court can factor that in. But Tessa, you asked what would actually happen on the 24th of August. Uh, and actually nothing will happen <laughs> on the 24th of August. The courts will just start to list cases uh, I think it's three weeks hence, 21 mm-hmm. days in, in advance. So, you know, that to me sounds like uh, another stay by the back door. Yeah, I think it's important to realise that all of this is about listing and not about the outcome of cases. So it's just a way to not have however many hundreds of thousands of cases all unstayed on the same day and have the judges' boxes full the impetus is on the parties so in almost all cases obviously landlords because it's not usually in the tenant's interest to unstay the landlords it's up it's their job basically to file this reactivation notice and Um, and i don't i don't think that's unreasonable i think you know with any with any type of thing uh, i mean with uh, certainly the first time i've i've come across anything like this in in my lifetime but yeah the onus is on the landlord uh, if they wish to continue uh, their their case to let the court know about it uh, but it's really really important that both parties have another bash at trying to uh, reach agreement because as you say uh, eleanor you know this is this is simply an administrative process uh, the, the changes that have been made are around, you know, the way that uh, a case goes through the sausage factory in mm. in simple terms and comes out uh, at the other end. Mm. And, you know, landlords, whilst Section 21 and, and Section 8, Ground 8 haven't been changed, as has been widely prompted that it should, uh, the fact of the matter is that a lot of discretion has been built into the administrative part uh, of the progression of cases. And, and so it's, you know, it's incumbent on everybody to engage with each other, engage with the courts if it gets that far, uh, you know, to make sure that things proceed uh, as appropriately as, as possible. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I mean, the onus on the land is on the landlord to tell the court about the effect of COVID-19 on the defendant and their dependents, but there's nothing built in there which gives an active duty to actually find out and in most cases landlords won't know but I would encourage landlords to give the tenants a call and try and find out and tell the court that if they've been unable to. Um, I mean you're absolutely right I mean the risk of not providing information is that the case gets adjourned and I know that you know there's various uh, schools of thoughts that that is something that doesn't have uh, teeth but the NRLA uh, are very much of the view that if you adjourn a case that's taken you you know six or seven months to get to that point to get it back into the sausage factory again is is going to cause another delay and it's going to cause significant hardship for for landlords who probably I say probably aren't getting rent during that time so from the point of view of best practice I know that a lot of landlords uh, are engaging with their tenants and actually I would say it's you know it's really important that tenants engage with their landlord as part of this process and don't go to ground because often a lot of the reasons that landlord uh, a landlord does give a notice it's because they're not getting anything back either in terms of rent or in terms of communication so i think the communication point is something that can't be uh, underscored enough in this process it's really really important i mean my understanding is that landlords won't be prompted to serve a reactivation notice so is this right so if they don't know about it and they just wait for the court to contact them about it they're going to wait until I think it's a date next year when the case will be permanently stayed. That's right. I mean, there, there is a point uh, that the, the working group are looking at around the communication uh, um, plan around this area. But frankly, a- any landlord with some gumption about them will you know, appreciate that there has been a stay uh, and will probably, because they're not getting their money coming in, you know, will be pro- uh, actively looking at how they can progress their case. So, you know, I'm not too worried about that, but I do think we are pushing through the working group for there to be a clear plan. We've actually drafted some of the reactivation notices that HMCTS are looking at at the moment, because with all of this stuff, you're asking for uh, for extra information. Landlords just want to get it right. 
you know, it shouldn't be left to the parties to, you know, work out what the court wants and when they want it. Mm. So we think uh, a strong comms plan, frankly, if there isn't one, then we will have one. Yeah, because the, the practice direction or one of the directions makes it clear that there are not going to be any prescribed forms. Because I know when I... Uh, so there's a difference between, uh, obviously, a prescribed form and... Uh, some guidance and, yeah. and that sort of stuff and f frankly you know I don't really mind uh, what format it takes as long as landlords and tenants don't get caught out by a technicality you know or you haven't you haven't satisfied the information in paragraph 3b or whatever well you know we just need to make sure that if there are uh, new rules of the game that everybody knows what those rules are. So, so just to explain the distinction rather than having form 97f that you have to fill in and if you don't it's wrong as long as you have the information in the practice direction then it reactivates however it doesn't you know if there is a form just to make it more helpful is that the idea let's let's take a look at how the hearings are, are actually going to be dealt with because um you know we do have this problem about people not being in the same place and being at risk of catching COVID indoors. I mean, what, what are the plans in the courts? Do you know, Bernadette, that they're yeah, actually... Well, if I think the indications are that the tenants will be offered a physical hearing and it's up to them whether they want the physical hearing and also in terms of duty ad uh, advice as well. There'll be, I think there'll be something like a review hearing first um, and then they'll have access to a duties list then, and then there'll be a substantive hearing. I think, is it 14 days following that? That's right. Um, and they would also have access to a duties list then. Mm -hmm. I think, I think the, you know, the, the, the issue here, and this is one that I think we're a bit disappointed with, is notwithstanding the very valid need to have you know duty advice to people that are potentially going to lose their home you know that's that's a given um i think for me it, it shows a very old-fashioned uh, approach you know in a way that everybody else has managed to do things online there is no real justification in my view as to why that all can't be uh, provided in a, an electronic way so you're, you're right the default position is a hearing uh, and an in-person hearing and a uh, an alternative method if you if you request it but back to the point about listing uh, you know rather than listing for a whole day you know the, the the judge leading the working group has been very clear that it's not going to work like that and that is where the delays are going to come so rather than dealing with 60 odd possession claims in a morning um i've been told the figure is likely to be uh, you know, roughly a dozen uh, cases uh, at yeah. best yes. um uh, and that in itself shows that there's going to be um a severe backlog uh, notwithstanding the prioritization that's going to be put in uh, as, as as well i think you know other other areas of the court service are managing to deal with things remotely i sit as a magistrate as you know and speeding offenses and uh, warrants and all of that sort of stuff can be dealt with remotely and, and other types of hearing so i think we would have liked to have seen a bit more digitalization of this process what do you think of that eleanor i mean is that something that some, um, some tenants would, would be able to cope with some tenants would be able to cope with it absolutely but i think there's really really big problems in terms of access for justice in terms of, of landlords and tenants really because lots of landlords also come to a first possession hearing unrepresented i mean our experience is lots of tenants lots of my clients don't have a reliable internet access I find it very difficult to communicate with my clients via zoom loads of them will just it's just going to be impossible for them to actually do this especially elderly people um, and also there's something about first possession hearings when lots of the civil procedure rules for evidence or kind of there's a casual approach taken which I think is the right approach in terms of justice where people can for example hand up documents they can say, oh, no, I have made another payment. Here it is. They haven't put that in a witness statement. And that's true of landlords and tenants. I think if you do everything electronically, you have to have people emailing documents in advance. You see the duty advisor. The duty advisor tells you, oh, no, your, you know, your severe mental health problems are relevant to this claim. Oh, well, you know, how I've got something on my phone. I'll show you as evidence. None of that's going to be able to happen remotely. So, yes, by all means, later in the process, when both parties are represented, we're all four inappropriate cases having remote hearings but i just i know it will cause delays but i just don't think the first possession claim can work remotely 
and there's everything's going to be working slowly in the court process due to COVID-19 it's not just possession claims no it will you're absolutely right I just wondered Eleanor what's your experience of, of tenants actually turning up to possession claims um when I've worked on the duty scheme there's usually a list of 30 or 40 and maybe 12 will turn up Mm. And I'd say lots of that will be because a prior agreement has been made with the landlords just before the hearing, um, usually with social landlords, that there'll be a suspended possession order and the landlord will just turn up on their behalf and agree. And sometimes people just don't turn up for mm. reasons we'll never know because they don't turn up. What about so, you, Bernadette? Is that yes. Yeah, that's maybe actually sometimes in central London is even less. So I don't know if those you know the landlords that issue proceedings there are more proactive in terms of getting an agreement with their tenants before it actually uh, is listed for a hearing but i would say maybe five to ten turn up yeah. because there is i think a big distinction on on between on this between social and, and private landlords and mm-hmm. i think you know it's it's widely muted that uh, private landlords are are notice happy uh, in in a way but actually a lot of the um and this is something that is going to have to change a lot of social providers use the discretionary grounds um almost use the court as a as a tool to formalize an arrangement and that's one of the things that is just going to have to be dealt with away from the courts uh, in, in, in a way, because it, frankly, it's not going to be one of the criteria for a, uh, a priority case. And I think, um, you know, when it comes to prioritisation, the harsh reality is I th- if I was a betting man, I'd say that your case won't get heard until it fits in to the priority category. Yeah, and I have to say that out of those, say, 30 cases, probably only one, two, three, or maybe none will actually be private landlord cases when I'm usually at the duty scheme. It's almost all social cases and Uh, and with no intention to get a possession order a lot of the time. And and isn't it interesting? Because I think that, you know, there is, it's it's almost like one of these myths that, you know, landlords are, are seen very much as, using section 21 and big debate about section 21 uh, obviously going to go in the not too distant future but the reality is it's social landlords that do far more evicting than the private landlord well i think a lot of private tenants are more likely to just leave when they get a section 21 notice because they know that they're not going to be able to defend it if they have the means to leave whereas a social tenant's property is more valuable so they won't just leave and they know they'll be more likely to defend it Possibly. Yeah, possibly. I, I, I guess you know, if, if a tenant did know their rights and uh, had read all of the, the various practice directions that we have mulled over, mm-hmm. um, you know, if, if they didn't leave, the reality is that they would be there for a very long period of time yeah, that's and right. a longer period of time. But I think as a tenant as well, I mean, lots of tenants just don't want to have a stressful relationship with their landlord. If the landlord wants them to go, they'd rather find somewhere else. And as a private tenant, you often have the option to just find a new house and move on. Whereas a social tenant, it's not like that. It's um, yeah. yeah. And I and think the tenancies are generally shorter as well, maybe six months or 12 months, and then they leave after the 12 months, whereas secure tenancies are for life, aren't they? Unless you have yeah, you know, a, you know, a fixed-term tenancy. Well, the, the average uh, tenancy length in the private rented sector is 4.4 years, which, again, yeah, uh, yeah uh, again, you know, goes against the grain in terms of the perception out there that mm-hmm. they, they tend to be more sort of short, shorter tenancies. But, yeah, I can understand that. But I, I think, you know, with all of the with all of these new rules, it, I think it does make sense to have a reactivation notice because, as you say, I think a lot of people may have sorted things out them themselves uh, and obviously the courts only want to deal with uh, what they've got left to deal with and I think you know if we've got landlords that are listening that you know have resolved cases it's incumbent uh, upon us all to let the courts know because that will mean frankly that other cases can be can be dealt with in in, in its place uh, and I dread to think what the the time frame is going to be for uh, possession claims it would be really interesting to see how it pans out yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting that in my experience of the court's other work is that it's been so much more efficient during COVID-19 lockdown than it has usually because it, they've just been able to focus on some cases. So hopefully they've cleared some backlog of other cases. But I mean, still, it's going to be years. If you think about a disrepair claim or another kind of civil claim that can take 18 months to two years to get through the court process. So who knows? I mean, it begs a wider question around the suitability of courts to be dealing with housing disputes um 
who else is going to deal with missing claims? <laughs> I suppose that brings in the question, which is which is on my list of things for us to talk about. Is is um what about a housing court? Should there be a special housing court with specialist judges, who hopefully would be able to deal with things quicker, um to deal just with possession claims? I mean, what what what's your view on that? There was a consultation, but I don't think they've done anything with it. I think there should be. I think there should be. Housing law is so piecemeal. It's so, it takes so long from start to finish. It can, you know, the cases can occur in county, it can start in county court. You've got housing cases in high court. You've got it in the first tier tribunal. Why not just put everything in one court, get trained judges that deal just with housing issues, and then things would be dealt. There would maybe be more specialized um, help for landlords as well, so they, you know, they would know how to deal with cases quicker you know so all would be under one one roof and things would progress a lot quicker than they are what, what do you think Eleanor? i think if you're going to have a specialist housing court with specialist judges that's properly funded where you have the same rules now regarding the civil procedure rules um so you can get into parties costs and it's not a tribunal then absolutely great all behind it um but what i'd be really concerned about is moving possession claims into a kind of tribunal forum because then legal aid won't be available um, for the tenants, which will be terrible for tenants a breach of their human rights. And actually is going to make the process less efficient as well because representation is helpful to mm -hmm. both parties. So if you want to shove everything in a new building, put judges that are experts in housing law in and give it enough money, then yes, we're all for it. Um, but the consultation is very unclear and it's sort of unclear what a specialist housing court would exactly be. I suppose a court doesn't necessarily mean a building, it would mean mm. a process and yes. I suppose a, a, a housing court could meet anywhere, it doesn't have to have its own bespoke buildings scattered around the country. I, I think when we talk about housing court reform I think this is far less uh, about buildings uh, and, and that sort of thing and far more around a, you know, a more appropriate way of, of resolving disputes that are cheaper, quicker and fairer. I mean, if you look at the types of things that have been brought in to deal with deposit disputes, you know, an area that I'm very familiar with, um, you know, those schemes are, are, are rattling through 15,000 cases uh, a year and issuing uh, decisions about money uh, within 28 days. Now, I appreciate there's a big difference between uh, a thousand pound deposit and losing your home, but there's probably uh, a happy medium in between that that means more specialist people making decisions about whether it's possession or repair or whatever, and uh, you know, more appropriate timeframes to deal with it. Because even before COVID hit, the, typically the average time for a possession claim is six months. And yeah, again, one of the other myths that exist is that actually landlords are pretty bad at uh, starting their claims early. So by the time a landlord makes a claim, because of the strong relationships that generally exist between landlords and tenants, you know, the arrears could well be well in excess of six months to start with. So, so we think there's a happy medium to be had, uh, making sure that the access to justice is, is right. Because also, you know, if a tenant's got a complaint about a bad landlord, one of the barriers for them to hold their landlord to account is by, you know, making a court application and so forth. And so we do think that there, it's got uh, strong links with the possession reform that is going to take place through the renters reform bill. But I would like to see uh, the results of the public of the um, public consultation issued to see what others think, because you know, I don't think that you can crack on with one without uh, understanding the direction of travel in that consultation. I suppose the key issue is that many tenants are completely ignorant about their, their legal rights. And, and this is where legal aid comes in. Um, what actually are the rules about legal aid for tenants? Because I think they've been hacked about quite a lot um, over the past 10 to 20 years. What, what rights do tenants have? Can they get legal aid for, for a housing claim? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the rules, the current legal aid rules have been in place since 2013. Um, so for defending possession proceedings, which is just what we're talking about today, um, tenants can get legal advice if they're eligible for legal aid. So they have to be financially eligible. So that means they have to be either in receipt of a passporting benefit, such as income support or universal credit and not have a lot of savings, or they have to meet the other financial criteria, which is 
too complicated to go into here in detail and too boring, but basically you have to have a low income and low amount of savings. And also your claim has to meet the criteria, so you have to have good prospects of success. You, you don't get legal aid unless your solicitor can make a good case that you're going to win your case and defend possession proceedings. And so you, can, you won't get possession proceedings then for a case brought on a mandatory ground? Well, not unless you have, for example, a counterclaim um, which will exceed the amount of money that, you know, on a Section 8 notice or something like that, or you can make out, you know, some kind of factual basis that the mandatory ground won't be made out. But yeah, if there's a Section 21 um, procedure with no technical defences, for example, then you'll, you won't get legal aid for it. There'll be nothing to say in the defence. Mm. Um, and likewise, counterclaims can come within legal aid. So if you have a disrepair counterclaim or some kind of other money counterclaim against the landlord, that will be covered by legal aid so long as the claim is for rent arrears. So a Section 21 claim with a counterclaim for disrepair, won't be, the counterclaim won't be covered by legal aid. And what proportion of tenants do you think actually apply for legal aid? I mean, are tenants aware of their rights? I don't know any statistics, but I will say that even of the tenants who try to get legal aid, I'd, I'd say that only a very small proportion succeed. Um, only a small proportion of tenants will be financially eligible in the first place. Out of those, lots of those who try won't be able to find a legal advisor because there are simply not enough housing lawyers using legal aid anymore because it's become very, very complicated. You don't get enough money. It's a kind of thankless task. And those, I mean, Anthony Gold we get many many requests that we can't take them all on and I'm, that's the case with every other firm of housing solicitors I ever speak to that the the demand far far outstrips the supply and then in lots of areas of the country there's what the law society calls advice deserts where there's maybe one um, solicitor firm of solicitors practicing housing law obviously there's conflict issues there they may already be acting for the landlord then they can't act for the tenants if you're the only one in the whole area or even if they're not acting for the landlord, they just will simply not have the capacity to take on all the cases. So whilst tenants have a very, very good prospect of getting some one-off advice via the duty scheme at the hearing, and you don't have to be eligible for legal aid, and any tenant can get that, um, what you actually getting a housing solicitor to take on your case and represent you all the way through under legal aid, it must be a very, very low proportion of tenants. Is that your experience, Bernadette? It is, it is. A lot of people that work part time and then they have a supplementary income via tax credits won't be eligible for legal aid, particularly if they've got a couple of kids. Maybe if they've got a number of kids, yes, but one or two children, I find that they're not eligible, which is, you know, they might be just over the, the threshold, which is, is, you know, unfortunate for them. And then, yeah. you know. Do you think it would help landlords, Ben, if more tenants were able to get legal advice and actually knew what their rights were and were able to talk about things sensibly? Uh, yes, I do, uh, actually, because I think you know, one of the issues and frustrations that, that landlords will have is that, that you know, they're perhaps uh, that, that landlords will feel generally that everything is very much in the tenant's favour question mark over that i think the truth is somewhere in, in between um but it, it, it's much easier to deal with uh, somebody that, that understands what they're signing uh, and understands what their rights and obligations are you know so i don't i don't think landlords would have any issue about that what i would say is that any any process where landlords are exercising their absolute right to uh, obtain possession you know needs to be cheaper, quicker, fairer than it is at the, at the moment. That can be achieved uh, through technology. It can be uh, achieved through different way of dealing with disputes without detriment to uh, the tenants' uh, rights uh, to know what it means for them. And that's why, you know, I think we have a bit of a frustration around some of the, the, the court processes because uh, as part of my leading question earlier, a lot of people don't, you know, a lot of tenants don't turn up uh, and don't engage in the court process, uh, either because they view it as not being worth it or or because they are somehow, you know, putting their head in the sand. Or they could uh, be scared. I mean, oh, yeah, court is a I'm very sure. scary process. I mean, I've been terrified and I was a solicitor going to court. You know? I mean, it's, it's not, it's not, um, you know. It's, it's no problem for anyone. Part. It's no problem yeah. for anybody. And lots of tenants don't open their mail. They may not know that there's a hearing coming up or they may just think, well, I'm going to lose anyway. I'm just going to wait for the bailiffs to come. But, but at, you know, at the risk of falling into the hysterical landlord bracket, you know, 
get a grip uh you know p- people have got to take you know responsibility for their you know their, their own lives and i think as part of wider reform of of housing having you know we talk about access to justice actually you know it may improve access to justice by dealing with justice in a slightly different way so that tenants feel engaged as part of the process rather than bury their head in the sands and ignore it yeah i strongly disagree i really think that even when you have a mandatory ground that the landlord still has to make out that ground and the tenant has to be able to give representations i think face to face is the only way that um justice can really be done especially with more vulnerable people and you say people have to get a grip but i think really especially when you're acting on the duty scheme you'll just be amazed how many people who are there have physical and mental health problems i'm not saying that's always a defense to the possession proceedings but there's often Obviously, some people yeah. are irresponsible, but most of them have a very good reason for not engaging fully. And sure. those are only people that have come, obviously, the other, I don't even know what happens to the ones who don't get there. But I think it's very, very dangerous to start doing all justice online. You know, I think it's one thing for a speeding ticket. It's another thing for somebody's home. And, and I don't think the, the default necessarily should be everything uh, online. Uh, but I think, you know, we put everybody into into one bracket that that somehow that they're uh, not capable or it's not the right thing to do and I think that where obviously there is a, a need for it to be done it, you know it absolutely should be done face to face I guess I just think the balance is is, is not quite right that's yeah, all. But how do you know until you get there face to face I think that's the problem obviously some people are completely capable and that's why if they have a defence I think potentially future hearings can be done um, you know via telephone or whatever but I just sure. think there needs an initial assessment I, I, I would just sort of leave with this thought that it's incumbent on both parties and, and any party that's involved in either t- the uh, the leading on to possession or the, the court claim itself to engage with each other and, and the court. And I understand that that might be difficult, but it is necessary. Yeah, I, mean, I think the answer to lots of the concerns are ones that unfortunately is not going to happen now because of coronavirus is just the court working more quickly and more effectively. Then oh, yes, you don't that's... really need to change it. What's, what's your view, Bernard? The only thing I want to say in terms of tenants getting advice and having access to advice is something, but also on the other side for the for the landlords to get advice and to know what the you know what the the notice, what the requirements for serving valid notice are, because we we have a lot of cases where we think, well, if you had actually looked into it or you'd sought legal advice before you issued the claim, it wouldn't even have come. It wouldn't even have come to that in relation to sort of requirements as to Section 21, if the landlord knew what the requirements are, they change very quickly. And there's a lot of updates in terms of uh, the leaflets you have to serve to the tenant, you know, what, what, what you need to serve and when. And that changes very quickly for the landlord to keep up to, you know, up to date with the uh, changes and also or seek legal advice and also maybe accept that legal advice. Or maybe if they were accept, uh, they were advised early on, well, I don't think you're going to go anywhere with this because it wasn't validly served or whatever, whether it's the Section 21 or the Section 8. And maybe you should just, you know, agree to stop the claim now because we have certainly found that in having landlords as opponents, that the cases go on much longer than they needed to. And they, when they, particularly when the landlord represents um, themselves, it goes up all the way to trial. And it's obviously it's, 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 it's a waste it's, of time and yeah. money on, you know. I mean, Ben and I spend a large part of our time trying to educate landlords, don't we, Ben? Yeah. Um, we don't always succeed, but we have a good go. We have a go. You can lead a horse to water, but, you know, you kind of... Well, I think that's sound advice, Bernadette, really. You know, it, it's in, in, incumbent on the landlord to make sure that they know what they're doing. Uh, I, I would also say that I think, you know, part of this, um, there's a greater role for, for mediation before before we get into instructing all of this. I think, you know, the more that we can encourage the parties to, difficult though it may be, to uh, to reach a settlement. And I guess that's where you know, you've got some rent arrears and maybe the landlord isn't necessarily happy about uh, the, the frequency of it being paid up. I think, you know, my message there is that, you know, the court service is going to be even slower uh, the, than it once was. So, you know, really try hard to mediate, negotiate and, and reach a settlement that doesn't involve uh, a court uh, if you can. I'm just saying there are two new, new two new services um, for mediation. One of them is from the Property Redress Scheme and one of them is from TDS, which I think is the one that's endorsed by um, the NRLA, isn't it, Ben? 
Uh, both are, are now endorsed by the NRLA and landlords uh, get a free stage of the mediation process with PRS uh, and landlords also get a discount if you're uh, NRLA uh, members uh, with, with, with TDS. Uh, we think it's the way to go. Uh, you know, the more we can knock, knock out the park at the early stages, the better, quite frankly. Sorry, I just want to respond to that. I just want to say my experience, it could be that, you know, I had, um, it's different from other people, but it's private landlords are more reluctant to to negotiate repayment plans and perhaps uh, social landlords la- landlords are. So that's, that's, they often tend, that's my experience, to go for possession proceedings rather than mediate some agreement in terms of re- and a repayment plan. One of the things that we have seen as part of COVID-19, so when we've done our research of tenants, so 90 odd percent have been paying as normal. Of that 10% or just under 10% that haven't been able to pay as normal, three quarters uh, have actually entered into payment arrangements with their with their landlords. So I, you know, I, I don't know if COVID-19 is, is forcing uh, a change in behaviour. Uh, if it is, you know, that's one of a few things that have come good uh, out of a pretty crappy situation. Uh, and I think it's to be encouraged and uh, going going forwards. Yeah, I mean, what I was going to say on, on subject of mediation is that usually the parties have such a diametrically opposed position. Um, one wants possession, one wants to stay in their home, that mediation is not going to be effective. But perhaps with four landlords, the potential for an incredibly long wait to get possession they might have more stake in actually trying to negotiate um, and they should do so if they can. Absolutely. Yeah. And under the normal situation, you know, if you were to introduce mediation, that would involve a change in the law because um, the, um, the the mandatory rent arrears ground, you know, that there isn't a defence to it. So um, there would need to be a change in the law if, if mediation was to become part of the part of the process. You're right. But I think we can, you know, we can encourage best on a best practice basis uh, and i think uh, you know against the backdrop of a very lengthy wait if if the reason that is being given uh, around uh, possession is something that can be cured uh, you know i'm talking about rent arrears or behavior or something like that you know i've just encouraged uh, as much of that sort of conversation to take place uh, and landlords that have previously dismissed it to reconsider it because you're going to be waiting a long time that's the thing. I mean, I think even if you've got a mandatory ground, but you're going to have to wait 18 months to get possession, then it's suddenly becoming a lot more attractive. <laughs> yeah, I think probably we better wrap up now because we've been rather a long time talking. I don't think we've reached any real conclusions, but I think there's quite a few things that we've agreed on. Um, so I hope that's been interesting for people. So thank you very much, Bernadette and Eleanor. Thank you. So, well, Ben, that was a very interesting discussion, wasn't it? Um, what do you make of um, what we talked about and our two guests? Yeah, I, I thought it was uh, really, really interesting. There wasn't universal uh, agreement in, in all of our, our discussions, but uh, challenge is a good thing. It's good to have some, uh, some, some debate over these subjects. And obviously something as uh, contentious as, as possession is worth having a debate over. Yeah, I mean, I... I I did wonder about having a landlord solicitor, but the solicitors that I could find were, were, were talent ones. But I think in the end, that was, that was really good. And it was very interesting to have Eleanor's input um, because she is, um, she is on the Housing Law Practitioners Association. And it was interesting to have their input in the yeah. discussion. It, 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 it was. I mean, obviously, um, you know, it comes as no surprise that uh, Eleanor, you know, uh, being involved with that organisation is not necessarily a fa- uh, in favour of a wider court reform unless it in- involves a court. But um, uh, it was certainly interesting to have the debate around what the future might hold for housing uh, disputes, because, you know, it's no secret that as you know, the NRLA, we want to see it to be uh, cheaper, quicker uh, and far more effective than it is at the moment frankly for both parties Mm, yeah I mean court hearings they do slow things up but I suppose for tenants who are who are unable to get a grip with uh, with the internet and um, and the online process it it is very difficult for them and of course as people said for some landlords as well I mean I've, I've got members of my 
service who are landlords and I, I know that they they do find it difficult sometimes. No, that's right. But uh, I think, you know, I approached this with the government's digital by default channel in mind. I think, you know, there is a point uh, and a lot of landlords will say, well, uh, you know, I, I know I rather tongue in cheek said, you know, that tenants need to get a grip. But, you know, if I'm being booted out of my home, I'm bloody well going to engage in that process mm. uh, fully. Uh, and I think, you know, frankly, it's slightly feckless where, where that doesn't happen. Uh, obviously, there are sometimes some very good reasons uh, why that doesn't happen. And the system picks those out. But, you know, it is incumbent on, on both parties to, to engage fully. Uh, and as I said in the in the podcast, actually dialing back out outside of the court process, you know, these changes are going to mean that landlords and tenants are going to have to hold their nose and come to some agreement. Yeah, I mean, I think picking out the hard cases is is going to be really important. Um, I don't know how that can be done. Um, well, the, I mean, you know, the hard cases, and um, we didn't really touch too much on the prioritisation aspect, but I know that prioritisation. Uh, or will be made a key part of uh, possession claims go- going forwards when the courts do reopen. Um, antisocial behaviour is likely uh, to be at the top of that list. Domestic violence is likely to be at the top of that list. And extreme arrears will be uh, mm. at the top of that list. Quite what extreme arrears translates into will be a whole uh, another question. But I reckon if I was a betting man, it would be somewhere between nine and 12 months. Um, and that's yeah. going to cause hardship for landlords. There's no two ways about that. Yeah, yeah, you can't afford to. Uh, well, I suppose that a lot of people are living with no income. Um, and whoever you are having no income for a year is, 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 is not good. No, it's not. And you know, the other thing to remember without making too political a point uh, uh, about it is that um, those that have no income at present have the ability to claim universal credit local housing allowance that's been extended. Um, landlords who have no income do not have access uh, to those things. And you know we're at fast becoming part of that excluded group that uh, is being much uh, talked about uh, uh, at the moment. So um, one to watch for sure. Watch this space. Well, I think probably we'd better wrap up now. So I would like to thank our two guests, Bernadette Chekway and Eleanor Solomon. And uh, also thank the people who help with the podcast, Patrick G, who does the editing, and, and Jill, who did the, the website design. And um, thank you, Ben, because you've taken, <laughs> you've, uh, you've been a very important part of, of this discussion uh, with your input from the uh, National Landlords Association. National so, Residential Landlords Association. National Residen- I find it very difficult to say. <laughs> Get your teeth in, dear. <laughs> yes, it's very difficult to say. National Residential Landlords Association. So um, thank you, everybody, for listening. And um, we'll be back again. Um, we're going to be back a bit later because um, we're not going to be able to record the next session for a while. But we will be back. See you next time. See you next time. <laughs>